Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Philippians. And it's kind of been exciting to go through these portions of Scripture. There's just so much in here. And we pray that as we read through these brief verses here that God will fix them in your heart. It's kind of hot there, George. It's Mike. Look at verse... 9, beginning in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, you, you probably are pretty familiar with this uh, these verses, you probably memorized them, you probably quoted them several times, but we want to kind of look at them in a little different light. Uh, just in way of review, I want us to re remember where we're at here uh, as we go through the book of, of Philippians. Last week, we talked of Christ's great humiliation, what he went through. And um, we talked about that it was, it was Jesus Christ who existed says, in the form of God, but he did not equate equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, it says. And he took on the form of a bondservant. And we talked about that last week. And it said, being made in the image, in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death. And not only death, but it said, death on a cross. And we watched those eight steps as Christ suffered that humiliation. And we talked about how he did that on our behalf. And so when we come to verse 9, it says, therefore. And you have to stop and you say, well, why is that there? Because he just explained to us the humiliation that Christ suffered. And as he went through that humiliation, now God, this is the turning point. And it says, therefore, God highly exalted him also has highly exalted him. And so Paul takes us from the humiliation of Christ down to the, the depths of his humiliation, what he went through, and he exalts him. And that's what we're going to look at today. And it's kind of the response to what, what God did through his son in, in his humiliation. And now, as he went through that humiliation, God highly exalted him, it says. Now, we, we talked about verses 6 through 11, and we said that early on in the church, in the New Testament church, this may have even been a hymn that they sang. Some commentators say that. And uh, as you read through those verses, you can't help but realize that this is very fundamental to our faith as believers. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road in our Christian walks. And we looked at the basic two parts here. There's the humiliation of Christ, and then today we're going to begin to look at the exaltation of Christ. But his humiliation is pointed out in verse 6, 7, and 8, and his exaltation is pointed out in verses 9, 10, and 11. And Paul does that wonderfully. And you'll remember that, that it was Peter uh, that, kind of in the theme of the Old Testament, the prophecies of the sufferings of Christ and his glory would follow in 1 Peter 1, 11. And these themes are kind of recounted throughout history. You have the humiliation of Christ and you have the exaltation of Christ. The, even the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Christ endured the cross. Well, how was he able to endure the cross? Well, the Bible tells us clearly, he said, despising the shame for what? For the joy that was set before him. And so the Apostle Paul is showing here in the book of Philippians that both humiliation and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to illustrate a very practical point. It's not just a theological thing. The first time we looked at this text, we said, well, what practicality is here for us? Well, in verse 5, you remember, he said, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, have this attitude which was in Christ, the same attitude that Christ had you should have. And he goes on to describe his humiliation. And then he goes on to describe his exaltation. In other words, the application to us is that we should have this same attitude. Well, what is it? He explains it. The attitude is one of humiliating oneself in order that you may be exalted by God. 
That's the attitude. That's the principle that's here for us. And that flies straight in the face of what the world teaches us, doesn't it? The world teaches us, no, you've got to exalt yourself. You have to climb to the top over the, the backs of whoever you can get to, but you've you got to make it to the top. And you've got to be number one. Well, the Bible says just the opposite. And you've got to remember that the whole theme here, as we're looking at in chapter 2, is, is that of unity. If you recall that. And so that attitude of, of unity and, and humility, it's all tied together here. That's why back in verse 2, he said, I want you to be in the same mind. I want you to maintain the same love. He goes over it because he's talking about unity within the body of Christ. He's calling for unity. In verses 3 and 4, he says, basically, your unity is a product of your humility. And as you consider others superior to yourself, whether it's at work, whether it's in your job, whether it's here in the church, and you don't only just look out for the things of your own interests, but you look out for the interests of others, that's what humility is. And he said, if you need an example, well then take it from Jesus Christ. He's the perfect example. Christ humbled himself in a way that we are to humble ourselves. And so we kind of want to look at this this morning because he, he turns it around and he changes from the humiliation of Christ and all of a sudden he begins to speak of the exaltation of Christ. He says, Christ was exalted. And the implication is, you know what? So will we be exalted when we have humbled ourselves before God. That's the principle. That's the practicality that we're looking at here this morning. The principle is he who humbles himself is what? Is exalted. And that's sometimes hard to manage in life, isn't it? And so when he says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he's simply saying, when you humble yourselves willingly, what will happen? God will exalt you. God will lift you up. But if you're just looking to be exalted just for the sake of being exalted, and you're not willing to uh, be humble, you're not going to get there in God's eyes. You may get there in the world's eyes. But how many people have climbed to the top only to realize the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall, and their life is empty? There's many CEOs, corporate business people that have a lot more money than we would ever even dream of. And their life is empty. It's a shell. They have nothing other than material goods. And so Paul wants us to understand this principle. You remember in Matthew 23, before we get into our text, verse 12, it says, Whoever exalts himself shall be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And so there's, there's one principle here with two sides to it, you might think of it that way. If you lift yourself up, God will push you down. I don't want to be on that end of, <laughs> of the Lord, personally. But if you push yourself down, if you humble yourself before God, what will happen? The, the Scripture says that God will lift you up. God will exalt you. It's the promise of reward for faithful humility in someone's life. It's a promise of blessing for sacrifice. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he goes on in verse chapter 18, verse 14 of the Gospel of Luke. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his, to his house justified rather than the other. That's the, the publican rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself, the scripture says, shall be exalted. And that, those are the words of Christ. It's a very simple principle. He used it at least in three other occasions. Uh, James reiterates that, and, and we looked at that when we went through the book of James. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will what? Exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. See, the problem with us sometimes is, we don't like that little thing at the end there, at the proper time. We want to be exalted when? In our time. When, when we want it. I remember as a, as a youth pastor, for almost 20 years, associate pastor in churches, and I'd sit there in the staff meetings or whatever's going on, and I'm thinking, why are they doing it this way? Why is this being done this way? It's so wrong. And yet, you know, who am I? I'm just a youth pastor, so, you know. You know, basically, you know, you had the office of the, the janitor anyway, so, I mean, you were like down on the totem pole. 
And I always thought, well, there's nothing wrong with janitors, <laughs> Mr. Allclean. I better be careful. But you know what? The, the, the thing was is that I, I saw all the stuff that I wanted to give input to, and I thought, you know, boy, I just, you know, I wish that somehow there'd be a way that I could have more of an input into what goes on in the churches. And, and that, that desire went on for almost 20 years. And, you know, it wasn't something that, you know, God knew the proper time. God knew the proper place. And that's just the truth of, of life. The one who humbles himself is the one whom God lifts up, whom God exalts. I was, when I was going to Bible college, one of my professors, when I finished Bible college, they said, well, you know, you can either go right into seminary and get your master's degree or you can go serve in a church and learn a little humility and understanding and get education practically, or you can go get a master's degree right now and in three years go out and destroy five churches and then finally realize, you know, maybe there's a new, different way of doing this thing. And I chose to kind of go into a local church and work, and, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And, you know, I think that the other, the other avenue may have been a little more glorious for my flesh, thinking, oh, I have this, I have that, and look at, you know, look at the degrees I have. But you know what? I wouldn't go back on the practicality of the experience that God's exposed me to for anything. And that's, that's just a principle that when we try to exalt ourselves, God will push us down. But when we humble ourselves before God, He will exalt us. You just think of the economy of God, how He works. You know, it's, it's by serving, the Scripture says, that a person is served. You know, some of you served your hearts out this weekend. And you know what? If I came up and said, hey, would you do it again? The answer would be, sure. We had fun. We loved it. It was great. Why? Because you were serving. And you were served by the people that were here. It's, it's by losing one's life that you find it, the Bible says. Very clearly. It's by dying to self that one lives, the Bible says. And it's by humbling oneself that you're exalted. And the one follows the other. Just assures the, the, the sunset follows the sunrise. It, it just happens that way. Self-sacrifice and humility is, is rewarded by God when we humble ourselves before our Lord and Savior. Well, Jesus Christ was humiliated beyond belief. And here, what Paul is saying is that Jesus then was also exalted. He was lifted up. And we want to look at that this morning. He becomes kind of an example of the kind of exaltation that God will grant to every believer. When God says to the Apostle Paul, look at others as superior to your, yourself. Be not concerned with your own things, but the things of others. He's saying basically that when you humble yourself, it's not without promise. God will exalt you. You see that lived out in the life of Christ. Christ humbled himself and was by the Father wonderfully exalted. And so will we be as we humble ourselves before God. You see, it's not just a picture of humiliation and exaltation, I don't think. But it's, it's, it's really an illustration of this principle that can be kind of fleshed out in our own lives for our own benefit. And this morning I just... Over the, we're going to be looking at four things this morning. We're just going to maybe probably look at the first one. Depends how it goes. Concerning the exaltation of Christ. And it's there in your notes. The first one is, where is the, the source of this exaltation? Who is exalting Christ? Well, in verse 9, he says very clearly, therefore, who? What's he say? God. It says, God has also highly exalted him. And so... When we examine the exaltation of Christ, the first thing we want to look at is, well, who's doing the exalting here? It's God who's doing the exalting. Very clearly. God exalted him, and God literally, it says, gifted him. And given him a name. Bestowed is the gifting. God exalted him and gifted him. And you notice there that that word, therefore, and it says because of his humiliation, that's why he's being exalted. 
And the two are inseparable. Exaltation is always connected to humiliation. There's no shortcut. There's no back door to that. That's just the principle that God has for us. If you desire to be lifted up by God, then humble yourself before the Lord. And Christ, who was so incredibly lowered himself to death, even death on a cross, the Scripture says, will be equally exalted, equally lifted up by God. Now notice there he says, therefore God also has highly exalted him. It's a wonderful word in the Greek language. It means to be super exalted or hyper exalted. Not hyper excited. Hyper exalted, okay? And it has the idea that it's just beyond what we could imagine. And it has the idea here in a moment of redemptive history, God highly exalted Christ. He lifted him up. Now, you just stop and you think of the theological implications in that statement. There's a lot there. We kind of want to look at this a little bit this morning. What does that involve? What does the exaltation of Christ really involve? Turn over with me, if you will, to the book of Acts. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in there this morning. Acts chapter 2. Verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. It says, This Jesus God has raised up. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Jesus. Christ, God raised him up again, and then it says that he was exalted to the right hand of God. He was raised up. He was exalted to the, the very right hand of God. He went to sit on the Father's throne at his right hand. That's, that's the, the resurrection aspect of his exaltation. Those, those two elements there are part of Christ's exaltation. The, the resurrection and the, 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 the kingship, the coronation of Him. And we see it there. See, that's why sometimes I have a problem when people say, Oh yeah, you know, uh, I saw the Lord yesterday or whatever. So what do you mean you saw the Lord? You know, the Lord is where? The scripture says right now the Lord is at the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus Christ is. He's not going to appear on stage with somebody or whatever. That's not going to happen. He's in heaven. And so those two elements of the exaltation of Christ are very important that we understand that. And in the fifth chapter of Acts, we read again, it says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Again, he's exalted through resurrection. And that was part of, of God's exaltation of Christ. In Acts 5, it's 31. And we are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And you stop and you say, well, you know, what is that about? Well, Christ was obedient to His Heavenly Father. And He was exalted. You see the resurrection, you see the, the coronation of that. So it involves the, the, the resurrection, the coronation. There's, there's even the aspect of, of intercession, the forgiveness of sin that we see in Christ's exaltation. And I just think that, that when we look at how, how Christ is exalted, that's something that we can look forward to. He intercedes as one whom, whom God has preordained to forgive us of our sins. In Ephesians you read even further about that regarding Christ's exaltation. It says that, that Christ was raised from the dead. That's the resurrection. It says that he was seated at the right hand of, in the heavenly places. That's his coronation. 
And then it even descri describes to the extent of that. And it says, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That gives us even more detail about his exaltation. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, God granted to Jesus Christ that when he went into heaven, he became a high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does that refer to as far as his exaltation? It's talking about his ascension. So you have this kind of fourfold factor of the exaltation of Christ. You have his resurrection, you have his ascension, you have his coronation, you have his intercession, and all those things kind of work together and make up the extent of Christ's exaltation. He was raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, and he intercedes as a high priest for the sins of his people. That's our Lord, that's our Savior. The Word says that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, right? He totally understands. Why? Because he walked in our shoes. He walked in our steps. And yet without sin, the Bible says. Chapter 7, 26 of Hebrews says that, that he is a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 25 says that he, he always lives to make intercession for them. So just like we saw the steps down in Christ's humility, even to the, the lowest depth of death on a cross, you see the steps back up in his exaltation on the other side. We saw that he was the form of God, but he was willing to let that go. In other words, he humbled himself to become a servant. Not just take on the form of a servant, but to actually become a servant. And that he was made in the likeness of man. And he was found in the fashion of a man, it said, and obedient to death, even death on a cross. Well, now he starts back up. You have the resurrection, you have the ascension, you have the coronation, then intercession. And there's a sense that we shall even follow in that partially. I mean, you stop and you think the day will come when we'll experience resurrection. Amen? I mean, aren't you looking forward to that? Either the Lord come or being resurrected, one or the other. But I'm looking to shake the dust off this body and get a new one. Got up this morning and I'm walking in the bathroom. My wife goes, your feet hurt or something? You know, I'm kind of looking like a crippled. I don't know why. And we'll even experience the, even the aspect of the ascension if Christ comes back and, and we're raptured up. And when we get to heaven, we'll experience coronation when we sit with Christ on His throne in the throne of God. The only one we won't need is intercession because we'll be complete. That's God's promise to us. Well, who is the source of all this? Who's doing all this? Well, the answer is God. God raised him from the dead. God lifted him to glory. God crowned him. And it's at God's right hand is where he sits. God gave him the ministry of intercession as a high priest to the people. And you stop and you think about this and you say, well, wait a minute. Are you, how could Jesus be exalted? Theologically, stop and think about that. Isn't Jesus who is already God, I mean, isn't, how could he be exalted more than God? How can you lift up somebody who is God? It's a good question. You stop and you think in John 17, Jesus prayed in his high, high priestly prayer. What was his prayer? His, his prayer to his Father was, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. That's the words of Christ. So there's an indication that somehow he gave up something which God gave back to him. And if you figure that out, then talk to me about it. Because I've been scratching my head over that one for years. But what Jesus was saying was, give me back the glory I had with you before the world began. There was something that he had that he was willing to give up, the Bible says, to come down here and take on the form of man. And there was something given back in his glorification 
I believe that in his coronation, in his exaltation, he received more than he had before. And you say, well, wait a minute, isn't God all in all? But there were more privileges and more rights granted to Jesus after his incarnation than he had before. He wasn't any more God. That's not the... That's not what I'm saying. He wasn't any more perfect. Jesus as God could never be given more. Jesus as God could never be elevated beyond the God that He was. And He already was the Most High God. He already was King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Bible says. But listen, as the God-Man, Jesus Christ, which was a new being for Him, He suffered things and He was given things that He would not have experienced had he not become the God-man. For example, he never would have had the privilege of being the interceding high priest if he had never been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. If he didn't walk in our shoes, it would have been a little hard for him to understand the shoes that we walk in. If he had never been tempted in all points like we are yet without sin, the Bible says, if he had never become the substitute for our sin by bearing our sins in his own body on the cross, all those things were a result of his incarnation. If his incarnation didn't happen, those things wouldn't have happened. So as God, he was in, incapable of elevation, but as the God-man, he could be lifted from the, the lowest to the highest degree of glory. There's a sense in which he, I think he received certain privileges from the Father that he didn't have before that because he gained them because of his incarnation. The privilege of being that high priest, intercessory high priest for his people. He, he, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. At his ascension, he was surrounded with myriads of holy angels, the Bible tells us, and went to take possession of his Father's throne and was seated there. He was elevated there as the God-man to the that personage only because of his incarnation. So God entered certain rights and certain privileges, not only of God as God, but of, of God as the God-man who had accomplished all these things during his incarnation. And so his exaltation isn't really in regard to, you might say, his nature or eternal place with the, the, the Godhead, but rather in regard to his submission, his willingness to submit and sacrifice all that he gave up. Now, I don't fully understand this, don't get me wrong, but you know, it's something to ponder, it's something to think about. And I really believe that out of the humiliation of Christ came his exaltation, came that new experience with new rights and new privileges that was granted to Jesus Christ, the God-man. His exaltation was the reverse of his humiliation, if you stop and you think about it. He who was poor became rich. He who was rejected became accepted. He who learned obedience had entered upon the actual administration of power that called all other men to obey him. William Hendricks, Hendrickson writes this, As king having by his death, Resurrection and ascension achieved and displayed his triumphant triumph over his enemies. He now holds in his hands the reins of the universe and rules all things in the interests of the church. As prophet, he through his spirit leads his own in all truth. As priest, he on the basis of his accomplished atonement not only intercedes, but actually lives forever to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. So he has entered into a, an exaltation, into a glory that is the same glory he had before the world even began, and yet it was with new rights and new privileges because he was willing to submit himself and, and take on the, the form of a man and be incarnate for us. And who did all this? God did it. It was God is the source of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. The Bible makes very clear statements about this in Romans 14, 9. It says, For this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord of the living and the dead. 
He did that in order that, that God might ordain him to that unique place. That God might lift him up to exalt him. In 1 Corinthians 15.24, Paul writes, Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to, uh, to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he had put all his enemies under his feet. And the implication there is basically all authority is given to him. God has lifted him up to a place where he is sovereign of everything. That's the role God gave to his son. John 5 says that God commits all judgment to who? To the son. This is God's gift to the son. God is the source of Christ's exaltation. Now, some translations there in Philippians, it says, and he bestowed to him. And it's, it's an interesting word. Uh, it means gifted. It says he also bestowed on him the name and, and, and so forth. It says that the word bestowed means to graciously give. Or you might say to wholeheartedly give somebody something. In other words, Christ was so to totally and utterly satisfied God's desire for the, because of His incarnation. He so accomplished redemption. God wholeheartedly and generously and graciously, you might say, poured out on Him the gifts of His exaltation. And so we see this Christ who went very low. He was, he was very low. As low as you could go. And yet, on the other side, Christ was lifted up. He was exalted. And God is the source of all that. In one sense, He can't be more than God. He is made higher than He has ever been. Because now, all the privileges of God, um, He has those, but He also has the privileges of the God-man that He didn't have before when He came to earth. So he enters upon this glorious, majestic, you might say, exaltation. And so the source of that is God. I, I want to look at the, the second part here just briefly. Not only the source of his exaltation, but look at the title of his exaltation. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him, Christ. And then it says this, And given Him the name which is above every name. The name. Definite article there. The name which is above every name. Well, let me ask you a question. What's the name that is above every name? can only be one. Not two. There's not three. There's not a couple you can pick from. I want you to kind of think through this with me a little bit. Whatever the name is, let's not draw any conclusions yet. Whatever this name that he's talking about, some of you say, well, I know what name it is, but let's just, just ride this little wave with me here. Whatever this name is, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, says that it is more... It's, it's a more excellent name than the angels have. That's what the Bible says. So whatever name it is, consistent with Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it, it will imply not just a means of distinguishing, you know, say, one person from another. It's not just, you know, Joe and Ken. Not that kind of name. But it's going to imply something of the nature of Christ. It's going to imply something of His person, revealing something of His inner being. This name will have to do that. It will not just be a title to distinguish Him from all other beings, but it will be a title that will literally cause Him to be ranked above all other things. All other beings. It will be a title that's characteristic with His his, his essence that will really identify him as, as superior to all other things. 
So it's not a comparative title. It's not, oh, you know, this is so-and-so and this is so-and-so. No, it's a name that sets him in the clouds above anything. There's nothing even that can compare to it. You say, well, wait a minute, why is God going to give him a name? See, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him this name. He gifted it to him. That happens all the time in Scripture. Think of the Old Testament. Remember the man in the Old Testament named Abram? Well, Abram met with God. God covenanted with him and, and he entered into a very unique relationship with God, you might say. And then all of a sudden, God changed his name. You're not going to be called Abram anymore. You're going to be called Abraham. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament. Well, he entered into a very unique relationship with God. And what happened? He got the name Israel. Even in the New Testament, an individual by the name of Simon. And Jesus called him to follow and, and, and Jesus gave him a new name, Peter. Even the church at Pergamos and the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 2.17 and 3.12, the Lord promised those who overcome, He would give them a new name. So we remember all that. That's, that's something God has done uniquely throughout history. And you know what? He does it right here, even in the case of Christ. He literally gives to Christ a name. He bestows on, on, on Christ a name. And it's not a name that will shock you or surprise you or, you know, I mean, he's had many names. He's been called Jesus, been called Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah. But see, here he receives a new name. And some of you say, well, yeah, the name in verse 10, it says the name is Jesus. That's the name that everybody should bow before Jesus. Some have said that this new name is Jesus. I, I don't believe that. Is that a new name for Jesus? That's not a new name for Jesus. It can't be the name Jesus because God bestowed on him the name Jesus at his exaltation. Or at his incarnation. God bestowed on, on him on the, the name Jesus when he was born. You remember... Thou shalt call his name what? Jesus. For he shall save his people. So here God said, I'm going to give him a new name. Well, it can't be Jesus because that's an old name. And it can't be Jesus for another reason. The name Jesus isn't above every name. Stop and think about it. There's a lot of people named Jesus. Go down to Mexico, you lots of people named Jesus. So it can't be Jesus. That's not the implication here in the text. You look down in verse 11, and it says that every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is what? So what's the name? The name is Lord. That's the new name. God gave him the name that is above every name. And the name that is above every name, beloved, is not Jesus, it's Lord. Some of you think, whoever is Lord is in charge, right? See, that's the name that is above every name. That's the supreme name. And by the way, in the New Testament, it's equivalent to the, the Old Testament, Yahweh, the name of God, Jehovah which indicates sovereign ruler. It signifies rulership based on power and authority. And out of Christ's humiliation, He became a ruler, a sovereign ruler. He became Lord. That's what God gifted Him. You stop and you think He'd already given hints about this is going to be His name. Remember Pilate looked at Him and wondered if He was a king wondered if he was really a master, and he acknowledged that he was what? Lord. Thomas looked at him and said, My Lord and my God. It was evident all along that he was the living Lord, but here, in his exaltation, 
he is formally and officially given the name Lord. He has become the God-man. He was the Son of Man on earth. Sometimes, a few times, the Son of God. He was Jesus, a common name. He was Christ, Messiah. And now Father, the Father goes on beyond all that and He says, you know what? If you're going to confess Jesus Christ, you need to confess Him as Lord. That's the name which is above every name. And he says in verse 10, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Verse 11, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see verse 10 there? That at the name of Jesus. I should pay attention because it doesn't really say it like that. It doesn't say that at the name Jesus, every knee should bow. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And what is the name of Jesus that the Father just gave him? Lord. See, the name Jesus doesn't make people bow. We have this weird thinking that if we just spout off the name Jesus at the end of a prayer or something, well, then everything's fine. It's not a little magic thing that you enter on the end of your prayers. What makes people bow is the name Lord. And it's the name Lord that men must confess to be saved. And that's clearly what he's saying here in verse 11. Every tongue must confess. And that's taken out of what we read in our Scripture reading uh, in Isaiah 45. In verse 21 and 22. It says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let us consult together. In Isaiah 45, Who has announced this form of old? Who has uh, long since declared it? Is it not I the Lord? And here it is. He says, There is no other God beside me. I am the Lord. He says, There is no other God. I am righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, Isaiah says, The Lord has gone forth, the word has gone forth by my mouth and righteousness, and will not turn back to me. And to me, every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear. Allegiance. And what's that talking about? It's talking about God's sovereignty. It's talking about God's lordship. And that's where he got every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. And God is saying here that I am Lord. I am the Lord. There's nobody but me. I'm righteous. I'm the Savior. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God. There's none other. Maybe you came here today thinking that, well, you need to come to church to kind of get filled up with some good music or whatever. I hope you haven't missed the basics here. If you haven't come to Jesus as the Lord and Savior, you're missing it. Coming to church doesn't do anything for you, beloved. It's not until God transforms your heart, convicts you of your sin, and shows you your need of a Savior. The Bible says we've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter how many times you come to church, how long your prayers are, how many times you even read your Bible, your, your devotions, how many times you help the homeless. All that is, is irrelevant if you're missing a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It says here that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who declared Him to be Lord? The Father declared Him to be Lord. He exalted Him because He was so humiliated. He exalted Him and He gave Him a name which is above every name. And Lord is above every name. If you're a Lord, you're basically above everything. If you go into your work Monday morning and say, Okay, office, listen up. I'm the Lord here. I think they'd understand that you're saying, I'm in control. You listen to me here, you're out the door. They, I don't think they would miss that. But it carries that power of sovereignty. And some will say, well, it simply means that he's God. That's all it means. It doesn't mean, you know, what you're saying. 
Well, if it, if it simply means that he's God, uh, stop and, and think about this. It might simply mean he's God, but once you've, you've said that, he's God, he's now in charge. He's sovereign. You can say it that way if you like. And the source of this exaltation of Christ is God, and the title of this exaltation is Lord, without a doubt. And we can't know Jesus Christ any other way. Don't let anybody else tell you. And I know there's different theological viewpoints on this, but that's the basic confession of the Christian creed, that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That's what right here in verse 11 is telling us. Every Christian must come to that conclusion. That's the bottom line of our faith. That's the substance of, of what makes Christianity different. Because Lord is above every name. You know, it just irritates me to no end when I hear people say, well, you know, uh, you know, I was lost and then I got saved and then I made Jesus Lord. Oh, you made Jesus Lord, did you? You had the power to bestow on Jesus Christ His Lordship. How ridiculous. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Who do we think we are? Now, if you want to say, well, you know, I mean, I'm submitting to His leadership and His authority. Well, that's, then say that. But don't say you made Jesus Lord. John Flavel, he was a... English Puritan wrote this, The gospel offer of Christ includes all his offices, and gospel faith just so receives him. To submit to him as well as to be redeemed by him, to imitate him in the holiness of his life, as well as to reap the purchase, purchases and fruits of his death, it must be an entire receiving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tozer said this, to urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is bad teaching. People calling on you to receive Jesus as Savior and not Lord. I don't think that's biblical. I just don't. He goes on, he says, no one can receive half a Christ or a third of Christ or a quarter of the person of Christ. We're not saved by believing in the office or the work. He is Lord. And those who refuse Him as Lord cannot use Him as Savior. See, everyone who receives Him surrenders to His authority. Why? Because He is the Lord. And we see that throughout the New Testament. Even back in Luke 2.11 it says, Today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not who you'll make Christ the Lord. John 13, 13, you call me teacher, Jesus said, and Lord, and he says, you're right, I am. In Acts 2, 36, he's lifted up, he was, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord. God made him Lord. God bestowed on him a name which is above every name. We need to make sure that we're teaching people the right things today. When people come to Christ, they don't make Jesus Lord. They submit to His Lordship. He is already Lord. This morning, the message for us is simple, not difficult. You want to be exalted by God? You want to be lifted up by your Heavenly Father? Then we need to, we need to come under ourselves and, and, and be humble as a people, as a church. You know, it always amazes me. The first thing pastors do when they get together at, at conferences or whatever Probably the number, maybe two questions that they ask. The second question. The first one is, oh, where do, you, where do you serve at? Oh, Grace Bible Church. How many do you run on a Sunday? And you say, well, yeah, that's because you don't have a lot. You know, if you had a lot, then you'd be waiting for that answer. Well, maybe, but that would be my pride speaking, my flesh. But if you stop and you think about it, yeah, that's not important. It's really not. You know, what, what really matters here 
is are we are we willing to humble ourselves as a church as a body of believers not only to Christ but to one another because that's how it fleshes itself out we're called to serve one another we're called to look out not for our own interests but for the interests of others and i'm happy to say our body does that rather well but there's always room for improvement in all of our lives. But remember that God is the source of this exaltation. It doesn't come from us. And the title that God granted Christ was Lord. And He is Lord. I pray this morning that He's Lord of your life. Let's pray and, and we'll be dismissed with a song. Father, we thank You for our time this morning in the Word. Lord, I pray that You would just minister to us continually throughout the day with the words that we've looked at in Your Word. Father, we pray that if there's anybody here this morning that has not put their faith, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that You would first show them their need of a, of a Savior. Lord, if, if they don't realize that there's sin in their life and that they've fallen short of Your glory, I ask, Lord, through Your Spirit that You would convict their heart and that You would show them that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. And as a result of that, we all need a Savior. And Father, as we humble ourselves before You, Lord, You will exalt us. You will lift us up. And Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know You, I pray that in the quietness of their heart, they would cry out to You, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and Father, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them in a, in a very real and intimate way. Transform their heart. For believers here, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't forget the truth of the gospel. Father, that we would be willing to correctly divide the word of truth. And we ask that you would move and work in our hearts and our lives. And Father, we just look forward to spending fellowship together afterwards. Just be with us throughout this week. We thank you and praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.